Good morning, Grace Bible Church. It is great to be with you this morning. I just want to thank you guys so much for having me here with you today. Uh, as Jacob said, I'm a Carolina boy, so I'm still adjusting to the cold a little bit, but I've loved being here in Minnesota. Um, and Jacob has been just an immense blessing to me uh, over the past couple of years and getting to know him through the Pillar Network, uh, through my sending church in Fuquay, Varina, North Carolina, Redeemer Community Church. I've gotten to know Jacob uh, just through a connection there, and, and he's been an amazing help to me as I've uh, sent him emails to ask questions about church planting and to learn from him and things uh, that he's done here. And uh, just know that you have a pastor that loves you. And I got to meet all the rest of the elders yesterday and share lunch with them, and they were also an incredible blessing. And, and you have a group of elders here at this church that really love you and are really very intentional about the way that they lead this church. So I just want to remind you guys of the blessing that you have here. They didn't ask me to say that, but uh, from the outside looking in, I, I really hope to have that kind of uh, leadership in our church in the future. Um, speaking of which, I'm planting in Concord, North Carolina, uh, which is just north of Charlotte. Uh, so if any race fans are here, you may know uh, Charlotte Motor Speedway is, is there in Concord. Uh, and Lord willing, we will be launching in just less than two months. So January 29th, 2023 is the date that we are slated to launch our Sunday services and uh, really begin meeting together as a church. So um, again, thank you all for the opportunity to be here today. And uh, as we continue, we're going to be in Mark chapter 7. So Mark chapter 7, you can open there. And as you go there, I want to get us to think a little bit about hunger. I assume all of us know, as human beings, what it's like to feel hungry. It's both a blessing and a curse, isn't it? You know, when hunger first strikes, it, it opens up these hopeful longings for some really good food to meet that hunger, uh, this hopeful desire. But if it strikes for too long, it leads to frustration, even desperation. You know, that line between hungry and hangry is really thin, isn't it? And for my wife and I, Sometimes when we want to sleep in on a Saturday morning, these famished creatures will bust into our room. Famished creatures, otherwise known as my children, and it'll make their hanger known. I've got a 13-year-old dog who has begun waking us up in the middle of the night in fits of hangry rage, wanting some food. I think because she's so old, she knows her days are running out, so she better eat while she still can. You know, the, the most extreme instances, hunger will drive people to legitimate desperation, People have been known to do desperate things when their need for food goes unmet. So while hunger can sometimes be a, a, a hopeful and a good thing, and other times it can be a desperate thing, despite that discomfort that it can bring, we know that hunger is a good thing for us, right? You know, God gave our bodies hunger so that we might be aware of our own neediness, so that we might look outside of ourselves for nourishment. Imagine an animal that never had the feeling of hunger. It never had that instinct. It never knew that it needed to go and get food. What would happen to that animal? Over time, it would wither away because it didn't even know what was happening to it. It didn't know that it needed to go somewhere for nourishment. So uncomfortable as hunger sometimes might be, every creature from great to small, us included, we rely on the sensation of hunger for survival. Now, in today's text... From the middle of Mark 7 to the middle of Mark 8, which is where we're going to end, we see several snapshots of hungry and desperate people. In one case of the four stories we're going to look at, it's literal physical hunger for a large group of people. In other cases, we see this desperate spiritual hunger. There's a, a craving for help. There's this spiritual need that has to be nourished. We'll see different individuals, different groups of people who have varying levels of awareness of their hunger and of their need. And much like them, much like the people we're going to read about today, you and I suffer from the hunger pangs of need 
in this life. But the question we have to answer is, where do we go for our nourishment? As Chris shared before, where do we put our trust? We also see in the passages here today that Jesus, the hero of the story, he's the one that comes to bring bread. This is interesting, but three of the four stories that we're going to read use the imagery of bread in some way. It's a theme that kind of runs between these stories. And each time, Jesus is the source. Jesus is the one who brings bread, the only one who can provide the nourishment, whatever that nourishment might be, that's necessary. We also see is the only ones who actually receive the bread that Jesus comes to offer are the ones who recognize their hunger, the ones who recognize their dependence and their need. And ultimately, ultimately what we'll learn today is that Jesus is true bread for hungry people. Let's pray as we continue. Heavenly Father, we come to you today hungry for nourishment from your word. Father, I pray that you would stir a deeper desire in us for the things of God. I ask that you'd open our spiritual eyes to see, our spiritual ears to hear the truth that you have for us today. So often our day-to-day lives and, and the world around us, it deadens our senses either to our needs themselves or to the fact that you're the one who actually meets our needs. And I ask that as a result of this today, that we would proclaim along with the prophet in Jeremiah 15, 16, your words were found and I ate them and they became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O God of hosts. We pray this in your name. Amen. And before we start reading here in Mark 7, I want to just give you a little context of what's been happening in this gospel. Since you're not in a series on this, we're jumping right into the middle of it. I just want to catch you up a little bit on what happens in this gospel. So, of course, as with all the gospels, we see the earthly ministry of Jesus. We begin with his birth, which we celebrate here in the Advent season, and we see his ministry here on the earth. And Mark's gospel is an account of that. We see story after story where people are asking this question, who is this? Who is this man? Where does he get this wisdom? Where does this power come from where he works these miracles? What is this that has been given to him? He comes proclaiming this kingdom of God that's coming. He calls people to repent and believe in the good news that he brings. And people in this story all throughout Mark leading up to this time, they're asking this question, could this be the Messiah? Could this be the promised one that we've waited on? One curious thing about Jesus, though, is that he often opposes the religious leaders that are in Israel. If we were to read the first half of Mark 7, we'd see Jesus in this argument with the Pharisees, who were the most prominent opponents of Jesus, and they were probably the most highfalutin religious people that were in the nation of Israel. And that first interaction, that we're not going to read it today or talk about it, it does set the context and the stage for what we are going to read today. And Jesus, in talking with the Pharisees, he has this argument with them about hand-washing. The Pharisees watch Jesus and his disciples eat, and they say, you, you didn't wash your hands before you ate. You didn't go through our prescribed, man-made hand-washing ritual that they had added to God's law. In that confrontation, they're trying to say, Jesus, you and your disciples, you're unclean. And in that confrontation, Jesus rebukes them. He says, you guys have created rules and traditions beyond what Scripture requires. See, these Pharisees, when they did this, they used this hand-washing ritual, this man-made command as a front to disobey the actual commands of God. They were so adamant about their hand-washing excellence, they felt that they could elevate themselves as more holy and disciplined than the other Jews around them and all the other nations around them. They think that somehow by their man-made rituals, they're more clean than the non-hand-washers 
in the sight of God. So there's this self-righteous element of their rules and their rituals, but there's also an element of this ethnocentric exclusivism that we see. You see, the rituals like those, they became dividing lines between the Jews and the Gentile or, or non-Jewish nations that were around them who didn't follow any of the Jewish law. So when these Pharisees, they confront Jesus and his disciples, and they say, you're not following these hand-washing rituals. They're not just saying, hey, we think we're more holy than you. They're saying, you're unclean, you're dirty, you're like a, you're like a Gentile, is what they're saying to them. Of course, if you read the Old Testament, we know that God did give some specific rules to Jews to separate them from the nations around them, but the purpose of those was to be a witness to the nations, not to exclude the nations from any hope of participation in God's kingdom. So Jesus comes to confront this, and and he says that you guys are being self-righteous, you're being exclusive, and he says, in essence, it's not your outward traditions, your rituals that make you clean or dirty, but it's what comes out of your heart. You see, where the Pharisees had been going wrong all the way up until this point in the book of Mark is that they took God's actual commands, they added their own, like this ritual of hand-washing, into the mix, and they used that to exclude others from participation in God's kingdom. Now, the reason I go to that is because the city that Jesus goes into, he goes to the cities of Tyre and Sidon, which are quintessentially Gentile cities. The people there are not Jews. The people there do not know the law of God. They don't follow any of those things. So right after this confrontation that his, his disciples watch, as he has this confrontation with the Pharisees, do you think it's any coincidence that right after that, Jesus goes straight into Gentile territory and begins saving and working miracles? I think it's no coincidence at all. And that's what brings us to Mark 7, where we begin reading in verse 24. From there he arose... And went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread And throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. So Jesus goes here to Tyre and Sidon. This woman comes to him and falls at his feet and begs him to heal her daughter of a demon. Now, Mark's description of her is that she is a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. So we know she's a Gentile. He's gone straight here into Gentile territory. If we looked at another passage that describes this, same instance, it's in Matthew chapter 15. It's a parallel account of this. Matthew calls the woman a Canaanite. If if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you probably know that should ring a bell for you. The Canaanites were the prototypical enemies of Israel in the Old Testament. This is provocative, right? This is a big deal. A Canaanite woman, a Gentile woman coming to Jesus and asking for help. What is Jesus going to do? You imagine you're one of his disciples. If you were one of his 12 disciples here, you would have been Jewish by birth, your entire upbringing. Your whole life you've heard these old stories of the war between Israel and the Canaanites and all the other Gentile nations. You would have been under the rule of Rome, under the rule of those Gentile nations. 
And here you go into Tyre and Sidon, and this Canaanite woman comes and falls at Jesus' feet right before your very eyes. Would you want him to help her? Imagine you were walking around in Green Bay, some of you Vikings fans, and a Packers fan comes and falls at Jesus' feet. Would you want him to help them? It might be similar to that. Probably a little worse. Now, first we see Jesus' response, and he responds to her pretty dismissively. He says, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Does that unsettle you a little bit? Does it seem kind of uncharacteristic of Jesus? Did he just call her a dog? He did. But notice what he's doing here. And he's playing into what one might expect a holy Jewish miracle worker to say to a Canaanite woman. He's answering it at least initially like you might expect a Pharisee to answer. Probably like his disciples wanted him to answer. No, this is not for you. Let's define our terms, though, for a moment in this parable that Jesus gives in verse 27. So, the children are the Jews and the dogs are the Gentiles. The idea here is that the Jews were the first recipients of God's covenant promises through the Old Testament. They were the children of Abraham. They were the heirs of God's covenant. So, the Gentiles, they were outsiders. In one sense, Jesus was sent first to the Jews as their Messiah, So for a Gentile woman to come to him begging for help, it was like a dog whining at the table, begging at the feet of the children and their master. But does Jesus ultimately shoo her away? No. See, with his first response, I think he's beckoning her to persist in faith. And then she responds to him with this utter humility. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Look at her faith. Seemingly turned away by this Messiah, she keeps asking. Notice for a second what she doesn't do. She doesn't argue that she's not a dog. She doesn't argue that he ought to consider her one of the children. She doesn't list her qualifications. The Pharisees would do that. You and I in this situation might do that. But not this woman. No, with all humility, she simply says, even if I'm a dog, even if I don't get the first share of the bread, I know that you'll give me the crumbs. And what does he do? He meets the very need that she brought to him. He gives her the bread that she hungers for. Right then and there, he exerts his absolute power over all spiritual forces with a word. He declares her daughter healed. In Matthew's account, when Jesus Response to her, he even exclaims, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. Might we be reminded again that Jesus isn't looking for qualifications. He's not looking for ritual perfectionism. He's looking for humble faith. What we learn from the story is that Jesus is bread for the undeserving. That he's bread for the undeserving. Look, by every definition of this word, this woman is unclean. She's a Canaanite, so she's unclean by birth. She doesn't follow the Jewish law, so she's unclean by their cultural customs. Her daughter is plagued by an unclean spirit, so she's unclean by nature of that. Three times she's unclean. Unclean though she is, she is humble enough to beg this pure, perfect Jewish Messiah. And Jesus is pleased, even impressed by her faith. Contrast this with what we know of the Pharisees, like I just described earlier in Mark 7. They think themselves so clean that they could call Jesus and his disciples unclean. 
If they came to Jesus needing help, they'd be laying up all their self-righteous deeds as a bargaining chip. This woman says, I know I don't deserve it. Please give me the crumbs. Have mercy on me. And friends, this is the kind of faith Jesus is looking for. He wants you to come to him in humility, admitting that you are utterly undeserving. He wants you to recognize that you are spiritually hungry, that you are starving, rather, with needs that only he can meet. And he will show himself to be true bread for you. You and I, by the same standards given in this story, we are the dogs, right? I assume most of us here, or if not all of us, are Gentiles by birth, but far more than that, we're undeserving dogs because of our sin, the sin that infects every person in the human race. There should be no room for spiritual pride or entitlement in our hearts if we're honest with ourselves. And we don't deserve a single answer to prayer, much less eternal salvation, Yet Jesus delights to give it to those who are willing to come to him hungry. To those who are willing to approach him by faith. So when you feel like you deserve absolutely nothing from Jesus, know that you are absolutely right. But come to him anyway. He alone is the one who gives bread to the undeserving. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, When I can't come to Jesus as a well-assured saint, I can always come to him as a needy sinner. And brother, sister, if we acknowledge our unworthiness and our need, he will give us the bread that we long for. Now, after this encounter with the Syrophoenician woman, Jesus keeps on moving on his mission. He continues even further into Gentile territory in the story that follows. So listen with me to verses 31 to 37. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. As we look here at the miraculous healing of this man, we see that Jesus is not only bread for the undeserving, but he's bread for the helpless. Jesus is bread for the helpless. We see him enter this region of the Decapolis, which Decapolis just means ten cities. If we were to read back a couple chapters before Jesus has come to the Decapolis already, we see that weird miracle where he heals this demon-possessed man who's possessed by a demon called a legion. And he casts out this legion of demons from a guy. Those demons go into a herd of pigs, 2,000 of them, and they rush down the bank and they drown in a river. That's a really weird story that happens there. But the text tells us that that formerly demon-possessed man then goes all around the Decapolis and proclaims to everybody how the Lord had mercy on him. And and what Jesus had done for him. And and the text tells us that they were all amazed. So that is our backdrop in Mark chapter 7 when Jesus shows up to the Decapolis again. I imagine that that miracle was the very reason that they rush up to him with this deaf and mute man. If there was anybody that had a chance to help this guy out, it was this Jewish miracle worker, this Jesus who was back in the Decapolis. Let's think about the man. 
Think about how helpless this man was. He was deaf and mute. He couldn't hear or speak. In those days, he would have had no good way of communication, especially in ancient times. Accommodation and inclusion that are talked about in our day and age, that wasn't common back then. Often people like that would have, uh, they, they would have been simply cast aside as outcasts of society. The people in his town, they also had no way to help him. He had no ability to help himself, and from all that I can tell, he probably had no clue who Jesus was, because when this demon-possessed man was going around telling everybody what had happened, this man couldn't hear it, and he couldn't communicate with anyone. He couldn't even ask Jesus for help. Praise God for those who brought him to Jesus. And as we look at the healing itself, we see this wonderful, selfless compassion of Christ. He takes this man aside, away from the crowd, away from all the clamoring of the city of the Decapolis, and he spends time with him, one-on-one. How how often do you think this happened in this man's life? That anyone would spend time with him one-on-one, face-to-face? I wonder and I doubt if that had ever happened in his adult life. And not only that, but Jesus touched the man. You know, often when somebody would have a condition like this, they would be deemed unclean and people wouldn't want to have anything to do with them for fear of catching it. You know, they wouldn't want to touch a person. But just like we see Jesus lay his hand on a leper and heal them, he was willing to have physical touch with this man. You know, the healing method is rather odd, isn't it? He puts his fingers in the man's ears, he spits on his hand and touches his tongue. It's pretty strange. Uh, But scholars think that this is probably a form of sign language. It's his way of communicating with the man that I'm about to heal you by putting his hands on him. We see in this healing that Jesus begins by looking up to heaven. That's where our help comes from. And then he has this deep sigh. It's like he's just moved to the core, burdened to the core with compassion for this man in his helpless estate. And with the word, Ephatha, he says, be opened. And immediately, this once helpless man, he's made well. He hears fully, he speaks clearly, he's restored. And then despite Jesus' command to everybody around him not to say a word, they cannot contain it. They all go and proclaim what just happened. And then we need to look at their words. What do they proclaim? They proclaim this worshipful but loaded statement. Look at verse 37 again. They say, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. These Gentiles, I don't think they would have realized it, but this statement is no coincidence. I believe this is the Holy Spirit's direction in them saying these precise words. This is a direct reference to Isaiah chapter 35, which is an Old Testament prophecy of the Messiah. I'm going to read it to you really quick. Isaiah 35, verses 4 through 6. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it to you. Isaiah 35. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Listen here. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So why do I say this is no coincidence? The Greek word that's translated mute here in this story in Mark 7 is only used one time in the Greek version of the Old Testament in the Septuagint. And that's what we just read in Isaiah chapter 35. That same word is only used once in the New Testament 
And it's here in Mark chapter 7 where they say he makes the mute speak. This is a direct reference to Isaiah 35, to the God who comes to save, to open the ears of the deaf, and to make the mute speak. This is the Messiah who comes and raises the dead. This is the Messiah who comes to bring blessing to helpless people who have nothing to offer him and no way to help themselves because Jesus is true bread for the helpless. Friends, this should move us, right? All of us, if, whether we admit it or not, we should know that we're spiritually helpless when we're left to our own devices. Because of the effects of sin on all of humanity and on us as individuals, we enter this world blind and deaf to spiritual truth. If you're a Christian, the only reason that you're a Christian is because at some point in your life, Jesus has pulled you aside from the crowd and he has opened your spiritual ears to hear him. And he's opened your once spiritually mute mouth to proclaim his name as Savior. To hear the beauty of his gospel message that Christ has died for your sins so that you, by believing, would have eternal life. It's because he's done that for you when you were once spiritually helpless. If you're not a Christian and you're here today, at the very least you'd admit that you're not currently walking with Jesus. Consider this. Has he so orchestrated the circumstances of your life to get you here today to pull you aside from the crowd And to say to the ears of your heart, be opened. If you'll admit that you're helpless to save yourself, if you will recognize your spiritual hunger, he will show himself to be the bread that you need. And again, for those of us who are already Christians here today, I think this story ought to also move us to follow the example of Christ. How can we show compassion to the helpless in the world around us? In your life, who are society's outcasts that you can treat with compassion and care, as Jesus did for this man? Who knows what God might do? He'll meet physical needs, but also eternal spiritual needs if you will show the merciful, compassionate love of Christ to those who might be considered helpless in your world. As we move into Mark 8, we transition into the next chapter. We come to a familiar story. This is our third story. Again, we see bread. And we see Jesus bring bread. We see Jesus feed thousands of people with only a few pieces of bread and fish. But there's one important feature that we need to focus on in this story that you may not have been aware of. Let's read Mark 8, verses 1 through 10. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? He said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set them before the people. And they sat them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Again, if you've read through any of the Gospels before, you may remember that Jesus performs this kind of miracle on two separate occasions. 
The first feeding miracle in the Gospel of Mark happens in Mark chapter 6, just two chapters before this, and the story is eerily similar to this one. Almost word for word, it's almost an exact repetition of the previous story, but there are a few differences to take note of. So in Mark 8, he feeds 4,000 people, instead of in Mark 6, he feeds 5,000 men with women and children. Here they start with seven loaves and a few small fish, but in that story, they started with five loaves and two fish. At the end of this miracle, they take up seven baskets of leftovers instead of 12. But there's one vitally important difference I'm going to get to in a second, so hang with me. Just keep that thought there. There's one more difference we need to talk about. Before I get to that, I just want to explain the significance of this type of miraculous feeding miracle. At first, there's this practical, physical dimension to the miracle. Jesus literally physically multiplies bread to physically feed a multitude of hungry people. It's an act of practical compassion to meet a legitimate need in the moment, like many of Jesus' miracles. Second, there's a theological dimension to this type of miracle. And in this, Jesus, he's showing his divine nature in making food multiply out of nothing. He does exactly what God did in the Old Testament in feeding the Israelites when they're in the wilderness when he sent manna. Jesus is showing he can do the very same thing that God the Father can, showing his divinity. This is Jesus' theological declaration and his sign to them that he is God. Beyond that, Jesus even says in John chapter 6 that when he fed the multitudes, it was a sign to show that he himself is, as he describes, the bread of life. That those who are spiritually nourished by him through faith will have eternal life. And if you're wondering, that's why I've been saying in this message that Jesus doesn't just give bread, but he is the true bread. Now, all of those elements, they're, pra- they're, they're present in the feeding of the 5,000, and they're present in the feeding of the 4,000. But there's a third dimension I want us to focus on here, and that's a missional dimension in this miracle. Now, notice this. We've, we've traced Jesus' geography through here. He started in Tyre and Sidon. He went to the Decapolis. And when this miracle comes up, it doesn't say that he changed locations. He's still in Gentile territory when he's feeding the 4,000. But where was the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark chapter 6. He was in Jewish territory. So I think Jesus repeats this miracle because he's now doing for the Gentiles what he had previously done for the Jews. We see here that Jesus is bread for the nations. Now don't forget the exchange between Jesus and the Gentile woman in Mark chapter 7. It is a bridge to this story. We don't want to forget it. What does she say? She said to Jesus, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take, or Jesus said, sorry, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. So quite literally, in the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus fed the children of the covenant in Israel first. But now, in Gentile territory, with this feeding of the 4,000, the Gentiles come to the table as well. How beautiful is this? They don't just get crumbs. They get the exact same provision, the exact same kind of miracle that the Jews got. They have leftovers as well, seven baskets full. Friends, these aren't merely crumbs. This is a feast. Jesus is bread for the nations. Remember this, the whole Bible storyline from beginning to end is of God redeeming the whole earth from the ravaging effects of sin. Yes, there was this special purpose for Israel. It was to bring about Christ, the Messiah, but his presence was never meant for them alone. His intention was always to reach the nations. 
If you read prophecies of the Messiah, Isaiah 49.6 speaks of him, the suffering servant of God, as a light to the Gentiles, to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul says in Romans 1 that salvation is for the Jew first, but also to the Greek, or also to the Gentiles and the rest of the nations. Revelation 7 shows us that every tribe, tongue, and nation will worship around the throne. Revelation 22 shows us that they'll all eat together from the tree of life, restored in the New Jerusalem. So by Jesus doing this entire series of miracles in Gentile territory, he's been showing this global aspect of his mission all along. It's the mission his disciples who are following with him need to see. It's the mission he's about to send them on when he commissions them. It's the one he's given to you and me as well if we're in Christ. So friends, if we want to truly follow Jesus, we should have a heart for the nations just like he does. We should long to see his message spread to every corner of the earth. The church that I worship with on Sundays until our church plant launches, it's in the Charlotte area, uh, they just sent out a missionary who's gone to the 1040 window in South Asia to bring the gospel of Christ, the bread of life, to people who have never heard. Now, what would drive a person to do that except this radical commitment to the truth that Jesus is bread for the nations, this deep conviction that everyone needs to hear? And let's not forget this. We are the nations also, right? The, the gospel began in Jerusalem. That's where the message started. And the only reason it's reached here thousands of miles away today is because people were faithful to take the bread of life to the nations around them. But even still, nearly 2 billion people in our world have zero access to the gospel in their language and culture. Nearly 2 billion more have minimal access to the gospel, even if it's not zero access. The work is not complete. Just as Jesus himself, he went to the nations as the bread of life, so we who know him are responsible to bring the bread of life to every corner of the earth. Whether that's us physically going or whether that's us supporting, whether that's churches like this sending to neighborhoods around here and also across to the ends of the earth. We know that Jesus is bread for the nations and we who know him must take him in the message of him to those who haven't heard. So I hope as we've read this, you've seen how all this applies to you throughout the last few points. We're all undeserving of Christ. We're all in some sense helpless apart from him. We are all the nations. But our last passage this morning, it might bring this even closer to home. Let's continue to our final, our final passage here. Mark 8, verses 11 through 21. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? Then he asks them, When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet 
understand? Amidst all the things we've said so far, we see here that Jesus is bread for the weak in faith. He's bread for the weak in faith. Now, in this passage, we're shown these two groups who both demonstrate their lack of perception about who Jesus is. We have the Pharisees over here on one hand, and then Jesus' disciples on the other. But what's important to see here is that while both are very wrong about Jesus, they both miss it, the way in which they are wrong is vastly different. But let's start with the Pharisees. Jesus crosses back into their territory by boat, and immediately, here they are again, the Pharisees confront him. And they come demanding a sign from heaven to test him. Of course, if someone came to this earth claiming to be the Messiah, or claiming to be God in the flesh, we should want some sort of evidence, right? But I imagine Jesus was thinking, did you guys miss everything that I've been doing? Food comes out of thin air, the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. Have you seen it? Of course they had. But here they come demanding yet another sign. Friends, this is the heart of stubborn unbelief. The thing is, there could have been a thousand more signs and they still wouldn't have believed. And as an act of judgment, Jesus in that moment refuses to give them a sign because he knew their hearts. When it says he left them, the word carries this sense that he fully and finally abandoned the Pharisees. Now, that might seem harsh, but after all, they asked for a sign, but why? It was in order to test him. They had no intention of believing. They simply sought a way to discredit him. So he let their hearts become more hardened by rejecting their plea. I want to warn you, if you're here and you are self-righteously holding something above God's head, something that he needs to prove to you, it's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. God has given us all the signs that are necessary, and what we do with that, we are responsible for. Now let's look at the disciples. They have this moment where they realize they don't have enough bread. They actually say we have no bread, although it says they did have one loaf with them. Some commentators think the one loaf was Jesus, uh, or maybe it was a literal loaf of bread. But they forget, nonetheless, that they've got Jesus, the one who twice multiplied bread right before their eyes, right there sitting in the boat with them. They're unaware that this God who spoke the universe into existence is sitting right before their eyes. It's gone over their heads. They've missed it. Jesus asked them this series of questions. Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? Do you not remember? Are your hearts hardened? He takes them back through these two feeding miracles. He says, when I fed the 5,000, how many baskets were left over? I can just imagine Peter like, ooh, 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 me, 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 12, right? When I fed the 4,000, how many baskets were left over? Oh, 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 seven. Guys, don't you get it? Don't you trust me? Don't you see who I am and what I've done? Why are you complaining that you have no bread? All this reminds me of a scene from the old 90s sitcom Friends. Now, for any of our Gen Z or Gen Alpha, you may not know what that is, but our, our uh, Gen X and Boomers and Millennials, we have no excuses. We should know the sitcom Friends. You might have seen this scene, you might remember this. It's now become an internet meme where Phoebe is trying to teach Joey how to introduce himself in French. And he, he keeps making up these crazy phrases, and he just can't put all the pieces together. So they have this back and forth where she's saying, okay, I'm going to give you one syllable at a time. Repeat after me. And the whole phrase is supposed to be, je m'appelle Joey, which is means my name is Joey. So she says, okay, repeat after me. Je. She says, je. 
She says, Ma. Okay, Ma. Pell. Okay, Pell. And she says, Now put it all together. Je m'appelle. And Joey says, Oui, poo-poo. He's got the pieces, but he just can't put the pieces together. You know, we see the disciples struggling to put together who Jesus really is, just like Joey Tribbiani struggling to put together a phrase in French. They get the pieces right, but they don't see the full picture. They're still missing it. But at the end of the day, they're vastly different from the Pharisees, right? You see, Jesus abandons the Pharisees because they have no intention to believe. When they question him, they do so as a way to pad their unbelief. And the disciples bring their questions, however, blind and obtuse they are, their intention is to believe. Jesus rebukes them, and he does it in love, but he does not abandon them. Yes, their faith is weak. Yes, their understanding wavers. Yes, they doubt despite all that they've seen, but they stay with him. And friends, listen to this. He stays with them, just like he stays with you and me. Let your soul be encouraged by this. If, if you're anything like me, then when you walk through moments of confusion in your faith or you walk through seasons of doubt or struggles with sin, despite all that you should know about Jesus, you probably wonder if he's ready to just snuff you out. You probably wonder if he's ready to just toss you out of the boat. But just as Jesus stays with them and he beckons them to keep on following, to keep on watching, to keep on struggling, he does the same with you and me. What a kind and gracious and merciful, patient friend of struggling sinners. So brother, sister, bring your doubts. Bring your questions. Bring your own stubbornness. And Jesus will prove himself to be the bread that's still with you in the boat. To be the bread that satisfies your hunger. He'll prove himself to be the one who really did die for your sin. And really did rise again from the grave to grant you eternal life. He'll prove to be himself the one who stays with you when it's the last thing that you deserve. I hope in all that we've read today, you see that Jesus is the bread that you need. If you sense that you're unclean and undeserving of anything the King of Kings could do for you, you are, but come boldly to him for grace. Beg him for crumbs and watch him give you a feast. If you sense that you're helpless and can do nothing for yourself, Even if someone has had to drag you here today into his presence, watch him lay his healing hand upon your soul and awaken your senses to him. If you realize that you're hungry for salvation, come to this compassionate Savior who multiplies bread so there's enough for you along with everyone from every tribe, tongue, and nation who is willing to come to him. And if you're weak in faith, if you're barely able to cling to what you already know of him, know that he is compassionate, gracious, abounding in love. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. He's a solid rock for wavering people like you and me. Friends, this Jesus, he's true bread for hungry people. And he's the bread that we need. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for your compassion, for your patience with us, for meeting every need of ours, whether it's spiritual, it's physical, most importantly, our need for salvation. Our greatest danger is the wrath of God. And our greatest hope is that Jesus has taken on the wrath of God for us on the cross to give us eternal life if we'll simply believe in him. 
And God, I pray that you would awaken deeper faith in us, deeper hunger for you, deeper trust that you are the one who meets all of our needs. How might we walk away from this place different today as a result of the bread of life? We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name.